open banking, I think of as just really the idea more than anything else that APIs would exist to use for banking and both sides, right? Both APIs that I can deliver bank data from my banks and also uh, APIs I can use to do financial transactions through my fintech apps or you know, Apple Pay or Venmo or any of those you know, big players. And, and actually the industry is starting to move towards the term open finance from open banking and actually expand that even further. I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. And uh, as of uh, this week that we're recording this, uh, so it may be a bit before you hear it, uh, a, uh, a part of SmartBear. So it's an exciting new feature. Uh, hopefully by now you've already heard an episode talking about it. But uh, I got to get used to how to introduce that. At any rate, I was actually just this week at a fintech conference, catching up with old PayPal uh, pals and that sort of thing. And uh, so I got fintech a little bit uploaded in my brain, which is great because we're really honored to have Clyde Cutting today uh, with us who, uh, I don't even know how to describe the scope of what you're doing here, Clyde. So you tell us, uh, what do you do in kind of the, the fintech world? Thanks. I actually uh, have worked with the big banks in open banking APIs for uh, five, maybe going on six years now. So really on the provider side of making customer data available securely to whatever financial application they're interested in using. Nice. Um, so I know for like for Stoplight and kind of my day job, um, the last few years, especially with kind of pandemic kicking in, was this huge acceleration of opening up platforms, lots of APIs, especially in, we saw a lot in the financial industry as well as insurance. Um, but I guess in that five, six years, like give us an idea of, I guess, A, what you're referring to for folks who maybe aren't in the fintech space and don't hear about this stuff all the time. Um, and B, like how far have we come? Where is it going? Yeah, that's actually a, a great story. You know, five or six years ago, if you wanted to connect your bank account or your bank account data to any other application, you had to share your credentials and the banks didn't have APIs available. So they use screen scraping to use your credentials to log into your bank and do whatever it is you ask them to do. So that meant anytime you used a FinTech application, you were spreading your username and password um, you know, somewhere else in the world. Uh, and anytime you change it, of course, you would have to update all those places in the world. I'm not aware of any specific significant breaches in fintech land. So that's good news and we'll cross our fingers on that. Um, but it's been a, a, you know, a big and growing concern for the major banks um, that security you know, obviously is, you know, takes security out of their hands, right? And puts it in the hands of hundreds and thousands of other uh, platforms, which is not a good thing if you're a bank and trying to protect people's money. And it's also, of course, become a concern of the federal regulators who I think in October of this year are supposed to 
issue, um, CFPB will issue some um, rulings or guidance on how banks should secure their information or open banking uh, you know, interactions in general should be secured. And we expect that that to include a upcoming prohibition against sharing of credentials for use of screens. That's fantastic news from a security standpoint. I guess if you're listening and you're like, why is passing my username and password around a problem? Hopefully that's pretty obvious to you, but like, you know, we want to minimize the time, the number of times that information gets passed around, especially to our bank accounts. So that's great. I guess when you refer to open banking, you know, there's been, uh, I have a weird view on it probably. Uh, so, uh, I'd love your just idea of what that means in more practical terms. And I think you gave us some hints there that like, this is about banks opening things up, but are we talking about a standard? Are we talking about a framework? Are we talking about a toolkit? It, you know, what, what's the, the practical assets that folks would interact with? Yeah. So open banking, I think of as just really the idea more than anything else that APIs would exist to use for banking and both sides, right? Both APIs that I can deliver bank data from my banks and also uh, APIs I can use to do financial transactions through my fintech apps or you know, Apple Pay or Venmo or any of those you know, big players. And, and actually the industry is starting to move towards the term open finance from open banking and actually expand that even further as Right, you know, maybe my investments, you wouldn't strictly call them banking, but we would call them part of my financial activities. Um, you know, what's my um, payroll? How do I exchange information about my income to, um, you know, to underwrite me for a loan request, et cetera. So uh, I really think of it as the idea that we will use APIs to exchange data. Now, right on the heels of that, right, immediately or even up front is that they have to be secure, right? We have to uh, use the very latest in OAuth or uh, FAPI for financial, um, you know, higher grade of security level in the financial world, et cetera. So um, tie those together. And that's where the Financial Data Exchange Consortium uh, really has been uh, trying to lead the U.S.-based industry to keep up with or even in some cases surpass what the rest of the world is doing both in terms of availability of APIs and their security. So if I'm working at, uh, say, a financial institution and I've got to go, you know, my project is to go build APIs, am I going to reach to one of these places to sort of follow a particular set of design guidelines or something? Well, the way the industry started, right, with screen scraping is that there were some large players that provided that capability. So if I wouldn't have to learn how to, um, read the websites of the 11,000 plus financial institutions in the United States, I would go to somebody um, that has done that uh, and can do that for me. Um, you know, so the big player, biggest player there is Plaid and, and Finicity and Yodley and, uh, you know, half a dozen others. So as a fintech, I would look to one of those uh, intermediaries as my source for connecting my customers to their bank accounts. If I'm at one of the banks rather than these intermediaries and I'm going to go build an API, is there sort of uh, design standards that I'm going to go plug into rather than invent my own APIs? Yep. Well, and, and that's exactly the role of financial data exchange. And, and 
you know, the driver on the bank side, right, is that that's where the big security risk is for screen sharing and sharing of credentials. And so um, I've worked at a couple of big banks in this area, and, and that's really their major concern. How much screen scraping traffic are we seeing on our website? How do we move that off to APIs? So that question then is, what data are my, you know, my customers' use of fintech apps scraping off the website, and how do I make that available in APIs? Uh, so Wells Fargo, that I previously worked at, was one of the early players, and there weren't really any standards at that time. And so they designed APIs that made sense to them and, and fit their fintech app you know, customer needs. But they played a major role, along with some of the other uh, large banks in the U.S., um, to, you know, Chase especially has played a big role to establish this financial data exchange as an industry-led consortium, partially to answer that question. What, you know, what are the APIs that you know, we can deliver? What is the you know, security concerns around delivering them safely? And what data should be in them, right? Because the data itself also has some security concerns, right? Or I don't want to be sending my customers social security numbers in plain text, for instance, or even their account numbers or credit card numbers in, in the clear. So that is six maybe years old that financial data exchange really got kicked off the ground and, and it's uh, seeing a lot of traction now. And we um, financial data exchange claims over 200 members. Um, about a third of those are financial institutions but they also have consumer advocacy groups, fintech firms, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the whole ecosystem of financial data and financial products in the U.S. And they, through those member firms and the APIs and traffic that the member firms are providing to their customers, you know, uh, to their external party fintechs on behalf of their customers, uh, they think 53 million accounts in the U.S. are now uh, secured uh, and providing data through APIs rather than screen scraping, which is, you know, I think it's maybe half half of the, the eligible target. Maybe it's not, not as big as half, but, you know, if you count 11,000 financial institutions and all their customer accounts, I don't know what that number is, but <laughs> it's a good part of the way there. Yeah. So I, I guess when we look forward to the future with some of this stuff, if these things are successful, and obviously it's you know pretty successful numbers you're throwing out already, if I'm writing some code to integrate with a given bank, would I expect that I could then reuse that code and point to other banks and get basically the same functionality in a portable way with like one code base? Again, part of the idea that financial data exchange is working towards a, a uniform standard, uh, we know that you know, banks are going to have their own additional requirements in many cases. And as I talked about, the aggregator layer there um, allows fintech apps to select a single partner that can handle um, all or the bulk of those integration concerns. That leaves then the you know the question of how to integrate across uh, all the different banks in the hands of the aggregators, it doesn't mean it goes away, but it's there are fewer people that really have to deal with that. Financial Data Exchange is holding a conference this fall or a seminar this fall on their certification process and how they are starting up a way that financial institutions and fintech apps can certify that their um, API and you know, financial data traffic is both secure, meets the security requirements, 
and meets the data requirements. Um, so you get that kind of integration that you're talking about on both sides of the, the uh, interaction. So, uh, you know, when we look back through the history of, uh, of industries trying to standardize on how to connect and integrate things, you know, a lot of times these things end up being kind of big and bloated, big and bloated and top heavy and designed by committee in its classic sense. So I guess, and I mean, I even, you know, I got enough gray hair in my beard to look back at like the SOA era and we had all this stuff, right? Like there were soap standards for virtually every industry at some point and just overnight, no one cared because it was gross. <laughs> So I'm curious when you look at kind of this new movement again to kind of, it's been 20 years, let's try again. Like, why is this maybe different? Well, I, I'm glad you asked the question. I started uh, first working in services when it was XML over HTTP. And then we had Corba, which didn't last very long. And Microsoft came out with the SOAP standard. And, and that actually lasted quite a while and is still in use in a lot of places. One nice thing about SOAP is it gives you very formalized environment to strictly define uh, APIs. And that is super helpful, especially as you're just getting into APIs when your flexibility is not a friend. Um, but REST has really you know, superseded that, obviously. I should mention, I've also done work with CICS transactions, you know, interfacing as uh, services to mainframes, right? So. So there's all the what is the ICS for folks listening? Was that what you're saying is like mainframe interface? It's, it's a mainframe interface definition. It's kind of a fixed length format, file transfer kind of format. I, I think where the real advantage of, of RESTful APIs and uh, JSON is um, that it doesn't have the fragility of SOAP and XML that... Um, in fact, the API JSON schema defines, you know, additional properties as valid or an XML that is not at all valid. So uh, that lets us um, not have to version as often to make valuable changes in place, um, let people consume which parts of an API that they use and ignore other parts without having to code to them because they exist. And not everything's a, not everything's a post. <laughs> From an HTTP standpoint, you get to cache. <laughs> yep, right. That yeah, that you get, you know, more flexibility in, in using different verbs, etc. And and the resource orientation helps a lot too. That um, you can think of what you're interacting with as as an object, right? If we think about object-oriented programming, um, it's an entity that I can think of as as interacting with independently of the fact that I'm using APIs to do that. But here's an interesting thought, and this has been kind of like part of my, um, you know, talk track this year is like reflecting on that era and seeing all these standards that came about and, you know, lots of things got built on. SOAP itself was prescribed to us by the largest companies who decided for the rest of us how we were going to communicate. Um, and REST, I think, has be become a lot more of a, a pervasive concept these days in part because it's been sort of a bottoms-up grassroots movement in a lot of ways. It wasn't a standard defined by anybody. It's not a standard at all, right? It's, it's just a pattern that um, some smart folks came up with and other smart folks jumped on, on board with. And even the conventions of what we say makes a good API was not determined by any big companies. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that I think banks should have a grassroots movement from developers to define how they do business, but I guess I worry sometimes with the emergence of these new big standards. And again, I think fintech's leading the way, banking's leading the way in some fa- in some fashion. Um, you know, do we have a healthy balance with sort of what developers need out of this versus what the banks need or what regulators need? That's an interesting question, and and I would add to your historical view, right, that the rise of REST and and flexibility in services kind of parallels the rise in open source, right? So it's in some sense... Absolutely, absolutely. It's all the same thing in terms of community building and decentralization, completely agree. Tool creation and developer support, et cetera. You know, we didn't even have the term developer experience until quite recently. In terms of standards, that that flexibility that we talked about in JSON is is sort of what makes it palatable, right? So financial data exchange has, I was just looking at it the other day and counting up what our schema looks like. And we have a dozen different files with over 15,000 lines, um, you know, APIs and entity definitions, et cetera. You know, how do you deal with that kind of thing? Well, well, first of all, these you don't implement all of it, right? Nobody's going to implement all of it. And, you know, an account has dozens, if not a hundred different attributes that can be passed back. Each bank does not going to return all that data. Um, and so that's, that's where, you know, as a standard, it still retains flexibility that I can still implement what's important to me. Um, if as a developer, right, or uh, a fintech, right, I need one that's come added to the FDX API recently is account open date. Right. And if I'm, you know, checking my balance, I, I don't necessarily care when I have an account open date. But if I'm doing a, a loan underwriting, that's maybe an important feature. And so for my use case of loan underwriting as a developer, I'm going to need to communicate with the banks on behalf of adding that piece of the standard to their API so that I can, you know, help them sell more loans. So if we turn our heads away from, let's say, developer community into, we got a consortium. There's a group of, com- of companies getting together and deciding essentially how to work together, uh, how to work with the rest of the industry. And you've been involved in that pretty heavily. Um, what's hard about that and what's made it work, right? Uh, like, how did you get past, because you know the track record of groups like this is not always great, right? It, it's often pretty ugly. Yeah. Um... It's hard in different ways, right? So if we look at the world, Europe and I think Australia, maybe some other pockets, have really gone a like a federal route, right? So the standards are set by federal regulation, right? So that is not a model for increased flexibility. Um, in North America, uh, the U.S. were waiting on standards. We think that um, the regulators will will defer to FDX or other industry groups rather than set it all in stone in the U.S. Um, you know, given the example of 53 million customer accounts that are now exchanging data securely instead of through screen scraping. And in, in Canada, it's a little bit of a mix. They are looking to, to FDX standards, but they have set more firm regulations about banks shall use this standard. Um, and do so in this way. And I'm not a Canadian expert, but 
um, you know, they're a little bit ahead of the U.S. regulators in terms of enforcing the standard or, or stating that the standard should be followed. I, I think it, it's a, you make a great point that, like, to some extent, the worst case scenario is that government determines technology standards uh, and that we're better off coming together as companies to do it. Um, I, I guess in the course of coming to decisions together, like, what's difficult about that? And I guess... Where my head is at is if I'm working in a different industry vertical and looking to this big movement in fintech, how can we emulate some of this success for other industries? So, um, yeah, so that in some ways it's, I've been really pleased. So I got involved with financial data exchange in about 2018, late 2018, early 2019, when I was working at Wells Fargo and Wells Fargo noticed that you know, their customer tax forms was some of the biggest areas of remaining of screen scraping data, right? So once a year, I need to get my 1099s or 1098s from the bank and send them to my tax advisor. And I'm sharing my credentials to do that because I don't want to have to schlep the paper or documents around. But FDX at its beginning, you know, was bank account focused. And so it didn't have a robust uh, tax schema. So I got involved at that time and to saying, hey, we need tax schemas at the big bank I worked for. How do we do that? And and uh, was a little surprised, but pleasantly so, to say, well, you build them and tell us what they are and we'll adopt them, right? And and that um, in the financial data exchange case, right, is very different than what I've seen in, uh, you know, ISO standards or IETF standards or WW, uh, you know, W3C standards where you know it's international and uh, decision making can take years and standards are you know implemented and followed even for years before they're officially uh, approved etc in the financial data exchange case any member is um, able to propose an RFC um, for changes to the API and so I worked with um, really two other guys uh, closely and we built 54 different schemas for tax, you know, IRS tax forms and said, you know, here they are, let's put them all together. Just glance at that number. That's 5,000 lines of API code. I, I don't expect that anyone in the consortium read that line by line other than the three of us, but, you know, we made our case and it was adopted by financial data exchange. So in that sense, um, financial data exchange standards really feel open source to me, right? I can make a contribution, you know, it's not exactly a pull request, but the group approves it and merges it um, if it's appropriate to do so. I love that. I think that's, uh, that's exactly, I think what I was fishing for in all of this is like, how is this different than I think W3C, ITF, some of these things where it's like, yeah, big, long, complicated design by committee things, but yeah, three smart folks who do this for a living getting together and agreeing on some things and then the broader group giving it a, you know, cursory review and going, yeah, this looks good. Like yep. that's how, that's how good stuff happens. Right. <laughs> so that's very, it sounds very promising. Now, I, I do want to add that there's also some formal review that goes on, which doesn't happen by all 220 members. And sure. as I mentioned, you know, I got involved to deliver this large block of you know, tax API stuff. And at right at that time, the person who had been sort of the primary committer was migrating out of FDX. He had other work commitments. And so I ended up being 
slotted into as the co-chair of the authoring task force that really has its eye on and you know bringing the in some sense formality but at least you know consistency and accuracy and um, you know ensuring that the API meets the intent in ways that uh, you know API definitions have real meaning and impact and and you can't be too informal about how that looks even if the process of submitting changes to them is is informal so um, we actually do line-by-line uh, -line review of, of all the changes that are Sure, yeah, I, I wasn't suggesting I shouldn't have said cursory, I'm sorry. I'm sure it's uh, quite formal and thorough. Um, I, you know, having been involved in some open source work and standards and things like that myself, I think this is, to me, like the important message of this kind of thing is, um, you know, you can have a lot of members in something, you can have a lot of people, you know, at the periphery, but at the end of the day, it's usually... Uh, some some primary kind of core committer type personas who are really carrying the torch for these things. And I think for folks who really know something well and feel like, yeah, I could lead a discussion on defining this for our space or at least take a first shot at it. Um, and I think this is happening in a lot of industries right now. Um, these things are forming is don't count on the fact that there's some mob of experts who are going to do it. Uh, it's going to take someone's passion to see these things through. Um, so I, I thank you for the uh, encouraging story there uh, that I'm sure some folks go, like, oh, great, an industry consortium, like bore me to death. But I think that's the inspiring bit. And I, I really appreciate you sharing the story with us. And uh, it's been great to chat with you today. Thank you so much, Jason. Appreciate it. And congratulations to you and Stop Later, the merger with Smart Bear. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.